0: It must be our Yap society text community blowing up my phone. Listen, I've had a blast reading all your text messages. So, if you haven't joined our text community, all you got to do is text YAP YAP to 28046. That's YAP YAP to 28046 to text me directly. All right, so today we're sharing an awesome Yap classic with serial entrepreneur and author Mike McCallowitz. I interviewed Mike on Yap back in episode number 52 in January of 2020, and our conversation really influenced how I run my company, Yap Media. And so I definitely thought it would be revisiting in the new workplace atmosphere that is 2022. The content is a couple years old, but still resonates heavily in this current environment. And this episode was made shorter and to the point so we can listen, learn, and profit faster. Mike is the author of six books, including Profit First, Clockwork, and his most recent book, Get Different, and they all focus on different aspects of entrepreneurship. He founded and sold three multi-million dollar companies before his 35th birthday. He's an active partner in multiple companies, including an American manufacturer, a business growth consultancy, and an augmented reality tech firm. He was also a former small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal and a business makeover specialist for MSNBC. Mike believes that you shouldn't have to sacrifice your life for your business to succeed. He shares the secret to having your business run itself like clockwork while continuing to grow and turn a profit. In this CAP Classic, Mike and I talk about why productivity is actually a trap. We go deep into Mike's seven steps to help your business run like clockwork, and we discuss my personal favorite topic, how to put profit first. So if you're worried that without your constant presence and effort that your business will fail, or if you're wondering about how to actually make a profit, this is an episode you wanna listen carefully to. And with that, enjoy my conversation with Mr. Profit himself, Michael McAulitz. You've written so many amazing books. You are a best-selling author. You've written Surge, Profit First, Fix This Next, Clockwork, The Pumpkin Plan, and The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. All of them tackle the topic of entrepreneurship and building a business from different angles. So at a high level, could you just share what your main experiences that you've had are? And how did you become the entrepreneur-it-all that you are today?
1: (laughs) Oh, thats I've never heard that term. I made
0: it up. That's awesome. (laughs) That's
1: awesome. I love it. I've been called an entrepreneur, by the way. That was someone's (laughs) like, gosh, you just don't stop doing things. Settle down. So um, my background is entrepreneurship. After college, I... I thought I was going to get a corporate job or something, but I couldn't. So I was thrust into entrepreneurship. Never had a desire for it. But, you know, a few years into it, I fell in love with it. It just became a absolute passion of mine. And the journey, for me at least, was very difficult. Tons of financial struggle, tons of stress. It's funny. Like you see someone's resume or my resume and you see like, oh, you know, build four multimillion dollar companies, sold two of them. And it's all true. But what what's left out conveniently is the struggles in between the the, the launch and the, the exit and on i'll never forget this day it was, it was february 14th valentine's day 2008 i had started my third business and it was a calamity i was doing angel investment work helping other businesses start up putting my own money into them i had made some money selling my prior companies and uh, i had no right to be in that space i had no idea what i was doing i actually uh, evaporated all my wealth and I had to come home to my family and tell them that we were going to lose our house, which we did and our possessions and oh all this gosh. stuff. And, and the defining moment was looking my daughter in her eye. She was nine years old at the time and telling her I couldn't afford to pay for her $20 horseback riding lessons. It was like a group session she'd love to go to because I was broke. And uh, she ran out of the room to go to her, she ran to her bedroom as fast as she could, grabbed her piggy bank and she ran back to me and goes, daddy, daddy, I'll start supporting our family. And <sighs> That moment was this wake-up call that I really didn't understand entrepreneurship. I didn't have fiscal discipline. I didn't understand what profit was really or how important it was. I didn't understand efficiency. So I, I started writing about it. And uh, writing is a good therapeutic process just to write your thoughts. But it started to formulate a book. And that's when I realized I need to research and understand and learn everything about entrepreneurship. Selfishly for myself so I can get better at it. And then hopefully so that other people will have an easier journey. You know, entrepreneurship is, is freaking hard. Yeah, And I'm just trying to make it just a little easier, just simplify it a little bit more.
0: Yeah, so what are the key milestones in your career? If you could just like rattle them off.
1: Okay, so I'll give you the key highlights. So uh, first company was in computer systems, computer technology. Sold that to private equity after I think we got to about $2 million in revenue. So a very small business.
0: Mm-hmm. Second
1: company was in computer crime investigation. Data forensics is what the direct term was. And our company was one of the lead defense investigators for the Enron trial. That was actually our marquee case. But we did celebrity cases Sadly, some um, many criminal cases uh, we did analytics on. And that was acquired by Robert Half International. Um, We were on a run rate for $7 just two and a half years in. And this Fortune 500 said, this is the industry we want to be in. And they bought us. That was the the grand exit. Mm -hmm. And then another highlight I told you is is losing all my money, uh, (laughs) which is an important component. After selling those two businesses, I was cocky. I thought I knew it all. I didn't. I was very fortunate in the right place at the right time. Um, I hustled. I worked hard, but I, I wasn't working smartly. And then I became an author, so I have that as a business. I uh, have six employees, so it's not just a you know author guy in a corner typing away. There's a lot more to it. And then I also own a membership organization for accountants and bookkeepers. We have roughly 450 active accountants and bookkeepers throughout the globe who are teaching our methodologies. And then I'm also on the board of a on the board of a uh, augmented reality company, and work with a manufacturing company uh, cool. in an equity capacity. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. But my my full time work though is authorship. I just love to research businesses, small businesses. That's yeah. my space. Yeah, just love it.
0: I had you rattle those off because I just want my listeners to understand that you're credible in this space. You have industry experiences. You've sold multi million dollar companies. You're not just an author who's right. or an academic or, or something like that. Right,
1: right. I'm not pontificating like, oh, you know, here's what you should do. But I can't. Yeah, uh, exactly. I, I, the best thing is, I, you know, I I everything I teach, I've guinea pigged on my business. So I wrote Clockwork. I know we're going to talk about that, and I talk about this concept of a four week vacation whatever, we, we employed that and, and and now actually all the employees, we've mandated that for them, you know, Profit First, uh, my most popular book currently, you know, I live by that system. So yeah. everything that I teach, I've tested on myself before it ever goes to print. And I think that's, that's different than some authors who, and I am not discounting their work, their work is powerful, but they don't necessarily, some of them have the practical experience of the implementation, just the study of it, you know?
0: Yeah. So I listened to your most recent book. It's called Clockwork. And mm-hmm. in it, you say your mission in life is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty yeah. Yeah. and um, make sense considering that you lost all your money and got it all back. And you have so much value. It was really hard to just narrow down to one topic. So we're going to stick to clockwork, which is really about optimizing your time and Profit first, which is about you know optimizing your profit. So we'll stick to yes. those two different topics right away. In Clockwork, you say that productivity is shit. Right, <laughs> you say right. it's a, it's a trap. It leads to more time to do more work. So tell us about that and what you suggest we do instead.
1: Yeah. So it was funny. I was I was in New York City, and uh, what happens when you write a book is like you study and prepare a hypothesis, and I felt that businesses need more efficiency and my belief was more productivity translates to more efficiency. They're they're almost synonymous. So I met with this productivity expert. His name was Chris Winfield. He had dedicated his life to the research of this stuff. And I sat down with him and that's the words he used. I said, hey, let's get right to it. How important is productivity? And he looks me in the eyes and says, you know, productivity, it's shit. And I'm like, hold on, wait, you're the productivity guy saying this? This is what? And uh, it was just Around that time, I mean, within the prior month or a few weeks that he had realized after teaching productivity for so long that it's actually a trap. And here's how it works. If you take on, you know, eight hours of work in a day and you employ productivity techniques to get through that work, theoretically, you'll be able to get that work done now in six hours, we'll say. So the same volume of work done faster. Mm -hmm. Here's the trap that now avails two extra hours that day to do more work. So it's the nature of entrepreneurs to then take on more work. Well, now you're taking on the former eight hours that you've compressed to six plus two, getting it back to eight. Now you're maxed out again. You need more productivity. So we seek new tools, new ways. And we constantly compact ourselves with work. We allow ourselves no margin of error, no time to think. It's this trap of just doing. Mm -hmm. And as we're talking, he says... He was saying that a successful business, the owner is an owner and not an operator. Definitely not an employee. I go to McDonald's, admittedly, with some kind of frequency because I travel so much. And I've started a a routine (laughs) and I encourage you to try the same thing. Next time you're at a fast food restaurant, if you partake in that type of stuff, I uh, go to the cashier and I ask them, I say, hey, may I speak with the owner? Not because I have a complaint. I'm just curious about the operation of your, your McDonald's here. I've never, and I've probably done this like forty, maybe fifty times now. I've never had the cashier say, "Oh, yeah, we grab the owner. They're in the back." No, the owner's not. You know, flipping burgers or, or cooking the fries, or in that glorified closet that they call an office. It's it's the store manager that's there. The business owners have employed and utilized the system that McDonald's developed, and they seek out new properties to own more businesses. The funniest, and this is kind of epitomizes. Uh, what ownership is. The funniest response I ever had I was talking to some cashier. I said, hey, I'm really impressed by the operation here. I speak to the owner. And the cashier looks at me and says, um, oh, yeah, the owner came in two months ago to pick up money.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm like, yes. So in clockwork, if we pursue productivity, we are actually forcing ourselves to do more work. Now, I'm not saying you don't need to be productive as an organization. But what we need to do as business owners is transition from – being the superhero that does the work for our business and the high-end work, to transitioning out. Instead of being a doer, we want to be what's called a designer. And a designer is someone that has a clear outcome that we're looking for our business long-term. That's called a vision, of course, but also the short-term. How do we choreograph our resources, the people we have or the software we have or that one part-time contractor if you're a small business, but how do you leverage the most out of the people and even the clients around you and the resources around you to get the outcome you envision? Mm-hmm. It's it's really about thinking, not doing.
0: Yeah. And I know in the book you say that we should be a designer and not a delegator. Could you explain what you mean by that?
1: Yeah. So there's four stages that a business goes through and it exists in all four stages. But the entrepreneur's journey is to kind of climb the ladder. The base level, I call it the four Ds, the base mm-hmm. level is doing. And doing is where we actually, as owners, do the work necessary to support the business. Every business must be doing. You have to deliver your services or goods. You need to have the administrative work behind it and marketing. So the deciding phase is the next level up. Deciding is where we task-rabbit individuals, but we control all the decision-making. So if you ever hired an employee or a contractor, and like I did this, I hired a girl named Jackie. She's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And she came on board, and I realized one of the doing activities I was really engaged in was invoicing. So I said, hey, Jackie, I want you to start invoicing. And she said, great, I'll do it. And I felt great. And then she came back a second later and said, how do we sort these invoices? And I gave her an answer. And she left. And she came back in my office and had another question. And it was this constant stream of questions, which in the beginning is great because it means she's a learner. Mm -hmm. But after a month of that, it's like, oh, my gosh, can, can she not figure this out? That's the deciding trap. And many small businesses are stuck here where the owner retains all decision making. Because it's easy, it's better just to tell them how to do it or do it myself at times than really build a system around it. And it satisfies our egos. Like, hey, you know, I'm the know-it-all. I'm the business owner.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: for the employee, it's the safest thing. Because if Jackie asks me questions and I give her instructions and she follows the instructions, she can do no wrong. Even if I give her bad instructions, as long as she executes on it, she's good at following instructions. So that's a trap. At a certain point, you do need to make certain decisions, so you need to move through that phase. The next level is called delegation, and delegation is not the assignment of tasks. That's what most people think it is. Delegation is the assignment of outcomes, and the difference here is delegation is where we are telling our employee, here's the objective we want to achieve. Do we have agreement on this? Now your job is to navigate it and give the employee the freedom to make all the decision-making around it. So with that invoicing, instead of telling Jackie, hey, go to invoicing, Now I'm saying, hey, Jackie, it's important for us to build timely and accurately. That's the outcome we want to achieve. And we have to get to agreement on that. I'm like, why do you think I feel that's important? And she said, well, if we build timely, we collect our money faster. That's fair to us. If we build accurately, we're representing the work we do appropriately. So that's fair to our clients. So it's a fairness thing. I'm like, exactly. So go do it. And then, you know, she starts doing it. She comes back a second later with a question. Now, this is the key. When they come back with questions, your employees, you -hmm. need to say, well, what's your decision? Push the decision back on the employee. And a lot of us have heard of this, not to make decisions for them. Most of us don't execute on it. That was what I found in my research. So you have to do that. But there's one other component that's probably the most important component in true delegation that almost everyone fails to do, yet it's the most important. And what it is is the approval of decisions that our employees make, the approval of Mm -hmm. all decisions, even the bad ones, the support for employees. So if the employee comes back and makes a bad decision, at least they're making a decision. And if we say, oh, no, 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 that's totally wrong. We're going to do it this way. You're very quickly slipping back to that deciding phase where Mm -hmm. it's control, which restricts your growth because now you're the one mind for the entire organization. So we need to approve all their decision-making, even the bad ones, and give them the freedom to fix the mistakes that they make. Now, there's sometimes they're going to try to make a decision that is really costly to the business. Like, you know, we should hire 20 more employees and they'll bankrupt us. Well, in that scenario, you need to insert yourself as a coach and and guide the – Thought and logic with the employee and say, well, what's the consequences of this? Let's discuss this before they proceed and curb that. But yeah. otherwise, support the decision making because that gives them empowerment that they're not going to be punished if they make mistakes, that they have given the freedom to find the solutions on their own, which ironically or coincidentally, we do for ourselves. Like, you know, we as entrepreneurs make mistakes all the time, but we don't fire ourselves. And then that moves us on to the highest level. So once we get through delegation, the highest levels designing. And designing is what we talked about earlier. It's that envisioning of what we want. And it's the alignment of all of our resources to get to that vision. Yesterday, this is this was literal. This was yesterday. We finished our two-day retreat for my business. And we worked on the design phase. And I have a clear vision of what I want for the business. But, you know, I'll tell you, coming out of a room with my six and colleagues there and saying, hey, we're going to do, you know, $10 million in revenue. Let's do this. Honestly, it's not exciting for them. It's exciting for me. I get the new car, the nicer Mm -hmm. house, whatever. But for them, it's like... So, (laughs) you know, here's really good designing. We sat down and each one of my colleagues, Jenna, Kelsey, Jeremy, everyone sat down and has wrote down their vision for their own lives. We're doing this work to support the outcomes we want in our own lives. So some people... I didn't know this. Three people actually want to become fluent in Spanish at our office. I had no idea. Another person is looking to build their first home. They're renting now, an and they're looking to build their first home. And uh, another person wants to travel regularly. And we we really got clear on our own personal visions. Then we said, how can we achieve all these visions? How can we walk and march a path where we're moving the company forward to a vision that I have as the owner. And we're supporting and achieving the visions you want. That's mm-hmm. vision alignment, individual vision alignment with the corporate. And that's what designing is. So just to summarize this, we as business owners need to move to the higher and higher levels. This is not it's not a switch. You don't switch from one level to the other. It's more of a throttle. Mm-hmm. You slowly move through these to higher levels. And you as the owner will have to revert at times to doing work. You will have to decide and delegate. But we want to be more and more focused on designing, build our team, for them to manage those other Ds, those other elements.
0: Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. I've got a special gift for all you Young and Profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Young and Profiters, as you may know, I launched my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass a little bit over a year ago. It was my first course. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash profiting. For me, I I have a lot of interns that work for Young and Profiting Podcasts, and that's the hardest thing for me to delegate and Mm -hmm. have them submit something. And I just like approve it as is because I want to like control our voice and control our message and make sure that everything's quality. And- that's where I find where our productivity stops because I'll get busy and I'll become like a, a bottleneck because yeah, right. decisions can't get made. So like how do, how do you suggest that when it comes to like content or I guess when when you're dealing with a less experienced employee, yeah. how do you how do you suggest we deal with that?
1: So first of all, just kudos to you, Hala, for being so cognizant that you are the bottleneck. In most businesses I studied, including my own. The bottleneck is the owner, yet for many of us, not in your case, but in many of our case, my case, my ego didn't want to admit that, that I, uh, I felt that I'm not the bottleneck, I'm a superhero, and I, it needs to go through me, I'm the ultimate. So the first thing for, that I needed to go through was just an ego check and say, am I really that important? Am I really that necessary? The concept of brand continuity and content continuity is that important, but am I that important? That's different. So, when I had that realization, because we produce a lot of content here. I'm an author, but also a blogger, a podcaster, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I have that team of six on my team. One of the people now is a full-time writer for us. That's Jenna's job. Well, Jenna came on with no writing experience in this space. She enjoys to write, but she's not a writer in the traditional sense. So, she didn't come on with a skill set. Here's the key. When hiring people, we need to hire people for their passion, their interests, their enthusiasm, cultural fit, intelligence. There's all these intangibles that we can't train. Like, you can't train me, Hala, to be more smart. You can't teach me to be more driven. You can't give me those things. Either I bring it to the table or I don't. The one thing, the only thing that you can teach me is the skills, the technical technique. So what we did is uh, we said we have a a need for some writing, and notably, we had an immediate need, so we did outsource to contractors and stuff, and it was – clunky and a little bumpy but we said we really need to develop this and someone needs to be extraordinary and we just kind of circulating with the team not saying that we ha- need this who wants to do it we actually didn't even really say that i simply said if you could do anything here what's your dream work what do you want to mm-hmm. do and it's interesting that jenna who did not come on for that kind of work she was coming on for more order management and stuff like that said you know i just i really like to write i don't know if you have any needs for it but i like to write and we're like you like to write let's get you started And so about 12 months ago, a year ago, she started doing some writing for us and her innate raw capability presented itself quickly. It's like, wow, she can write well and effectively. Mm -hmm. Then it was like, now let's develop this into a skill. So we went into voice, I don't know if the term is called voice management, but training on how Mm -hmm. to emulate a voice. There's actually classes and course material for that. We are teaching her in processes of persuasion and influence, like different words and stuff like that. And and even launches because we launch books, right? So mm-hmm. I have one coming out in just four months from this recording. Jenna is now actively involved in how do we communicate this in a persuasive but appropriate style to our community. And she's really stepped up into it. So I found that when people like or love to do something, they can gain the skills very quickly. It's finding people that have an interest and even a passion for something that is, from my experience, far more important than having the existing skill set. I would even argue Mm -hmm. when I've hired people with an existing skill set, sometimes I've had to try to unlearn, help them unlearn Mm. process and habits because it was incongruent with what we wanted. But they, quote-unquote, knew better, and it was really very difficult and caused conflict.
0: Yeah. For me, I've been like employing like templates and guidelines and trying my best, so hopefully it will smooth out. In the book, you outline seven steps that can help our business run like clockwork. So your book is like 240 something pages long. So I know that we can't cover all of these steps in detail, but could you give us the summary or elevator pitch of this seven step framework?
1: Yes, yes. So the the first step is this concept of the four D's we talked about. And it's, it's really the basis action we need to do is analyze our existing time. How do we actively spend our time And uh, if if you maintain a calendar like I do, I track every activity of the day. I can just go back in my calendar over the last two or three weeks just to see what a normal week looks like. That's Mm -hmm. the goal. And uh, we may be surprised as business owners of small businesses, we typically devote a disproportionate amount of time to just doing stuff. Actually, we probably won't be surprised. We spend little, very little time in designing. The irony is the day before you start your business, most of us are in this design phase. Like, oh, the business is going to look like this and we're going to have a cool, we're going to allow a dog to walk around the office. Like, you know, we have all this great visionary stuff and that goes out the window on the first day. So figure out, analyze your time so you can find out where you're devoting your time. Yep. The next level is this concept of the QBR. Uh, stands for Queen B-Roll. It came out as I was doing research for this book. It takes me about five years to research a book. And I was researching it out, trying to find what the most efficient, businesses are in the world. And I found many individual categories. I remember going to Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and meeting with this playset manufacturer, very efficient. And they had a system, but they had their own kind of system that didn't necessarily apply to everybody. When we can't find a common thread, the next step is often to do what's called biomimicry. Go back to nature, see what nature's doing, and see if that translates back to business. Because nature spent you know a billion years figuring out how to do something, she's probably got mastered. Well, the most efficient organization, if you will, in the world outside of you know human organizations are bee colonies, mm-hmm. very efficient, can scale very quickly. And they follow a simple rule set that the most important function in a beehive is the production of eggs. That's the QBR, the queen bee role. Now, in beehives, queen bees lay the eggs. These bees die pretty quickly, it depends on the species, but they can die pretty quickly. Therefore, every bee is programmed to know you must produce eggs. Now, the queen bee is the one who produced the eggs, but every bee is responsible for the production. So they need to be heated or cooled. The bees will change the, the activity in the hive to support that. They're always grooming the, the eggs. And if eggs aren't being produced, that's not the queen bee's problem. That's everybody's problem. The queen bee herself, too, by the way, I don't want to be confused like she's the most important bee. She's just as expendable as any other bee. If she's not producing eggs, she'll be removed from the hive, and a new queen bee will be spawned. So it's about the egg production, that activity. Well, Mm -hmm. how it translates to business is every business does not have a singular most important person. There may be a person supporting the most important role, but it's that role that's most important. We need to identify what is the most critical function in our business that's delivering on our promise. What's the egg production? Just as a real quick example, I as an author, my promise to readers is that I will – Simplify the entrepreneurial journey. I make entrepreneurship more simple. That's my commitment. That's my promise, and I, I deliver it through my books and so forth. As I look at all the different activities, I do podcasts like we're doing now. I do speaking interviews. I'm going to do a TV thing soon. All these different things are important, but there's can only be one thing that's the most important. The queen bee role, and for me, it's the writing of excellent books. I need to write excellent books now. I, I'm the only, I can't be the judge and jury. The readers will tell me if I wrote an excellent book or if I wrote a bummer. Mm-hmm. But I need to devote myself to highest quality books. If I continue to deliver on that, my business will continue to grow. Am staking my reputation on that? Conversely, if I'm like, eh, I can just ha- sign that part out to a ghostwriter, it doesn't really matter. Let's just churn through books. My reputation will sink very quickly. Mm-hmm. So the QBR is the singular most important activity that supports your reputation, what do, you want your, what do you want to be known for? Your reputation. Then ask yourself of all the activities, which one's the most important to support that? And then you go to the third level, which is protect and serve the QBR. Every employee, including ourselves as business owners, must ensure that that egg production, if you will, is happening. And if something needs to be compromised, if we can't get everything done, the one thing that will always be done is the egg production. The other things can be compromised. If mm-hmm. I stop doing podcasts, if my speeches stink... As long as I write excellent books, I'll continue to make progress. If my books suck, I won't get any more speaking. So the priority is not speaking. The priority is writing excellent books. That, so that's the third level is the protect and serve the QBR. Four is capturing systems. Capturing systems this. Most people write SOPs, templates. You're talking about how you do that. Here's the challenge with that. The challenge is the other side, the person receiving that template, needs to actually follow it. And it's human nature to divert from it, not do it. Our attention spans are very short, so we may skip on it. The process that's better is to do captures. And captures is, I shouldn't say better, is a great alternative mechanism, is to use capture of the activity as we do it. So basically record video. If you do invoicing like I do or I did, I simply use a screen capture, and I'm recording the process as a best practice. I then go to Jackie with this capture process and say, hey, watch this. This is our best practice, and follow this. Now, here's the key to captures, though. Then I told Jackie, after two weeks of doing this process and really understanding it, now you, Jackie, have to record a video explaining it for the next person. Teach it, because ultimately, the best student in the room is the teacher. Therefore, like in your situation, you're saying you're doing these templates, that is a great first step. I would now mandate that, that that person actually records a video teaching, demonstrating how to do this for the next person. And I don't mm-hmm. really care about the next person so much. I just care that this person that you've taught now can demonstrate they know this because they have to teach it. So mm-hmm. that's the process of a capture. And the great thing, of course, now is since they create these videos teaching what they know, if they ever leave our employment, their knowledge doesn't walk out the door. We've captured it. So that's the capturing process. Mm-hmm. Five, five, Bring balance. It's called balance the team. Balancing the team is uh, putting the right people in the right places. And we already, on this podcast devoted a little bit of time to that. This is that dream alignment, asking employees, what do they want? What are they passionate about? And matching them up. Historical models are we use a uh, basically a pyramid process where, where you have the president you know, up top. We usually write the word me in there. And we have a long line coming down and then below us, we have all these other people and we have that traditional organizational chart. When we match or balance the team, what we're doing is we're matching people's talents to their tasks. The old model, the organizational chart, matches people's talents to titles. You know, I need a receptionist. I'm like, okay, well, what's a receptionist? That means someone that's really good on the phone, they can do light data entry, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you may have someone come in the door, and uh, this guy is just amazing how friendly he is, but the the guy cannot do data entry if, if his life depended upon it. And historically, we'd say, well, it doesn't qualify to be our receptionist because it doesn't check all the boxes. Well, we actually had that exact scenario. And so we hired that guy and we said, you know what, you're so good on the phone and so good at greeting people. But quite frankly, the phone rings maybe, you know, once every 10, 15 minutes, but no one walks in the door. What we're going to do is we're going to station you in a way that you're also going to be our frontline salesperson. So that when sales calls come in, we want you warming up that relationship because you're so good at it. My former salesperson, who's a closer, is really good at closing, isn't giving you the warm and fuzzies. But it happened that she is really good at data entry. So we started doing, say, so mm-hmm. you're no longer a salesperson. Your talent is that you can close deals, but also you're going to do our data entry and so forth. So we started building this web-like structure. It's no longer a pyramid structure. And what we found is you can get so much more accomplished with fewer people because you're matching their talents to the tasks similar to what I said before, is ask people what they are, are excited mm-hmm. or interested in doing. Don't put any titles to it. Don't say this is what we need. To say, what if you could do anything in this world, what do you want to do? And then our job as owners is to start matching them up. That's how you balance a team. Yep. And I would argue with our six people, and by the way, of our six people, only two are full-time. So that's four part-timers. We produce at the levels of my prior companies that maybe had 20 or 30 employees. And we're able to do it because people are doing what they're really excited and interested in doing. So that's how you balance the team. Six, commit to the specific clients that you desire to serve. As we build efficiencies into our business, you'll identify the clients that it resonates with. But you'll also identify the clients that you enjoy working with. And this is where we start honing in on that specific community we want to serve. Now, here's the funny thing. The concept that's been revolving around for a long time is to do this concept of pivoting, meaning when you start your business, day one, identify the client you want to target, sell something to them, a MVP, a minimum viable product. And if it fails to serve them or they're not buying it, clearly they're indicating through the behavior, they want something different. So sell them something different, modify your offering. It's called a pivot, keep modifying and then keep modifying until the client buys. Well, here's the problem. Many businesses I studied have pivoted themselves into a business that, yes, it's making money, but the owner hates the business. Mm -hmm. That is the antithesis of what we want. So that's why it's as we build this efficiency, we then, as as near final step, we evaluate what true customers we like the most, and we're serving the best now through our systems, and cater to them. So now you're doing what you like to do. You've built efficiency around it, and you're serving the community you like to serve. That's the ultimate win-win. Mm -hmm. And the final step is is really releasing ourselves from the company. This is that, I I call it the four-week vacation, but this is the going to McDonald's and the owner's not there kind of concept. Mm -hmm. The ultimate goal of a business owner is that there is no dependency on you from the business, that the business can survive, I should say thrive. The business can thrive in your absence. And what this allows you to do is then you can have choice one. You have a cash ATM. The business is running on its own. You can pursue other endeavors as you get consistent flow of money. Mm-hmm. B, you can reinsert yourself in the business in the way of your choosing. What gives you the most joy? And that's why I chose option B. So my business now generates consistent revenue and will continue to do it in my absence, allowing me to reinsert myself into the role I want. I'm not the president of the company. Actually, Kelsey's president. I'm simply the spokesperson. I I do interviews And I write books. That's what makes me really, really joyful. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm doing. The four-week vacation is this concept of the ultimate asset test. If you can be taken out of your business for four consecutive weeks, a full physical and digital disconnect, and the business grows in your absence, it's likely it can grow into perpetuity in your absence because most businesses experience all elements of the business in four-week cycles, billing, hiring, new clients, losing a client. If your team and your systems can support that for four consecutive weeks without any of your active input, now you're most likely in a full-time design capacity where you're working on the vision and objectives and outcomes you want for the organization.
0: We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Young and Profiters, I'm about to be jet-setting all over the world. I'm going to London, Cancun, New Orleans, and New York to speak. I'm going to be up there with the bright lights and That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to racketon.com or download the Rakuten app at R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password, and then i have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. This is super helpful stuff. So I recommend anybody looking to enhance their business to pick up a copy. It's super interactive and practical if you like to be hands-on. Let's move on to the topic of profit, something near and dear to our hearts at Young and Profiting Podcasts. We were doing some research, and many of your descriptions of revenue really reminded me of the Pareto principle. Pareto's principle states that for many events, roughly 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. Would you share with us how revenue is not the same and not all revenue is created equal right. and how to identify those critical causes responsible for a majority of our profit?
1: Yeah, the, the Pareto principle can also be called the 80-20 rule, and, and it is exactly what you said. What his research and subsequent many people have discovered, and I've seen it play out in practical ways in so many capacities, is that often 20% of our client base is yielding 80% of the profitability. And uh, many of us, like when we're trying to grow our business, we have that one frustrating, nagging client. We're like, I cannot stand this person. They're killing me, but I can't afford to fire them. The irony is you actually can't afford to keep them. The, the other side of the 80-20 rule or the 20-80 rule is if 20% of your clients yield 80% of your profitability, that means 80% of your clients are yielding only 20% of your profitability. And when you look at those, it's not all equal. You know, there, there's definitely some bottom feeders. There's some clients we have that are costing us. So we can leverage this in many ways. One way is I call it the Pareto overlap. And I just touch on this a little bit in Profit First. But the Pareto overlap is analyzing your clients, which ones are the most profitable, meaning which ones generate the most revenue, matched to the products that are the most profitable. So we basically have two columns here. Column one is ranking our clients. Column two is ranking our offerings. And it's the clients, the best clients that do the most volume with us, buying the best stuff, and we like doing business with. Those are the ones we want to clone and focus on. And of course, there's some clients that are great clients, but they buy unprofitable stuff. Well, that's an educational opportunity. Explain what else we have to offer them. See if we can transition them to something that serves them better and is more profitable. Conversely, you have horrible clients buying great stuff. So they make you money, but they are a mind suck. That is the ultimate test. Usually those people we have to jettison. It's hard to make someone that That you don't like become likable even Mm -hmm. if they're making us money and then of course the other final intersection is clients that do very low volume we don't like working with and they're buying stuff that's not profitable at all that's the starting point just removing those clients free up so many resources it's funny as i was writing profit first one of the greatest gains of getting rid of unfit clients was mental profitability meaning instead of going to bed bitching and moaning about, oh, that client, I, can't, I, I hope tomorrow I don't have to deal with them again. They're such jerks. Instead, now you're going to sleep saying, oh, I love my clients. I can't wait to do more for them because you, you've jettisoned that bad client. Those bad clients take up tons of emotional space.
0: That's incredible. And it made me think, how many how much expenses we spend on bad clients and how just reducing those unnecessary costs you you would see a jump in profitability automatically and reduction in stress in your employees and everything like that so i think it's a really good concept to think about
1: yeah they th- they take a disproportionate amount of time and therefore profit so what we really consider is when delivering something what is the investment to deliver it so sadly in in traditional Counting analytics if we sell a coffee mug that's the product we're selling we'll say that coffee mug the profit margin is 20 percent. so i sell it for five dollars i make a dollar every time i sell it well that's not true you don't make a dollar every time you sell it because great clients will say well, i want five thousand of those and they'll buy high volume secondly if there's a mistake or whatever they'll say hey whoops there's a mistake we want to give you a heads up would you help us fix this and they'll actually get engaged in the resolution Conversely, you have these low clients that are never satisfied. The they order volume is very low. They order one mug, and then they're like, you didn't do it right. The, <laughs> the ink colors, is not, that's not consistent. I want it again. I want it again. And now we're making 10 mugs to satisfy this person, and it actually costs us money. So even though traditional accounting says you know, a mug makes a dollar, it actually is contingent upon the client that is buying that product On the real profitability or loss for that thing.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about the profit first mentality before you go. Yeah. There's an age old formula for profit. It's sales minus expenses equals profit. And you have said this formula is a myth and can lock you into a never ending cycle of selling more yet profiting less. Can you talk to us about that and how you rework this formula?
1: Yeah. So it is the most pervasive formula in business world. In fact, It's penetrated our vernacular. So we call profit the bottom line or the year end. I mean, that's the exact terminology we use. Listen, mathematically, it makes logical sense. You have to have sales. You have to subtract out the expenses you incur to have a profit. I get that. The problem is this. Behaviorally is radically wrong. What we're saying is that profit is the last consideration. So most people at the end of the year say, did I make money this year? I didn't. Oh, damn it. Maybe next year. You know, when it's, it's human nature. When something comes last, that means it's insignificant. We don't have to be concerned about it now. So profit is treated like the perpetual manana syndrome. The resolution is to flip the formula. It's sales minus profit equals expenses. That's why I call it profit first. It's the first consideration after sales. Sales minus profit equals expenses. How we do this in practice is every time you have a sale come into your business, you take a predetermined percentage. You start slow and low, maybe 1% or 2%, and you grow it over time to 5 10 15 20%, whatever. But now if $1,000 of deposits come in from revenue, we take, say, 10% of that, $100, allocate it to our profit, a literal physical account, often one that we don't have easy access to, so we remove temptations to steal from ourselves. And now you see for your business, you don't have $1,000 to spend, you have $900 to spend because you've taken your profit first and you start working within mm-hmm. the confines of what really is available. We're reverse engineering profitability. In short, this is the pay-yourself-first principle simply applied to business.
0: Yeah. And I know over 175,000 companies have implemented the system so far, so you must be doing something right. Very cool stuff. So Aristotle has a quote. It is, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act but a habit. In a similar vein, you have said that profitability isn't an event, it's a habit. Could you talk about that in more detail?
1: Yeah. So... Many business owners, including myself, for a decade plus, looked at the end of the year or the end of the quarter to say, hey, do we have a profit? And if not, then I try to do correction. What I believe, I'm convinced now, is that profit is a habit that every single transaction, we bake it in every day or even every hour. So it can be this literal that every deposit that comes in, you immediately take a percentage of that money out as profit, hide it away, and you run off the remainder. or as I teach in the book, I suggest on a periodic basis, maybe every week or every two weeks that we're taking out profit first and then seeing what's left over. There was a uh, theorist, his name is Parkinson, Northcote Parkinson's his name, and I think he was in the 1950s, studying our utilization of resources and came up with this concept called Parkinson's theory. And basically, mm-hmm. what he said is it's human nature to expand our demand to meet the availability of a resource. For example, if, if you put a, a cookie in front of me, uh, I love cookies, I will eat the cookie. If you put a plate of 15 cookies in front of me, I won't eat a cookie. I'll probably eat, well, I'll probably somehow figure out how to eat 15. So as the resource expands (laughs) in its availability, we'll consume more. So Pareto said the greatest way to control our consumption of a resource is to restrict its availability. You know, just serve one cookie and you'll only eat one cookie. But also an interesting phenomenon happens. The less available something is, the more innovative we become in its utilization the more we savor what we have. Next time you go to a French restaurant and they serve like 1 pea, and that's like your whole dinner, you'll notice it's our behavior to eat very slowly. We cut that 1 pea up into 15 pieces somehow and we we'll eat <laughs> very very slowly to savor what we have. Well, when we remove the profit first, now we start looking at our business in a different way. We're like, okay, I only have X dollars for my business. Well, I mean, I should buy my computer equipment used or maybe there's a way to get labor less expensively. You know, maybe mm-hmm. I don't need that great A office space. And we start reconsidering things. It's called forced frugality. But we also become innovative. We start breaking the rules of the industry and just don't do what everyone else does because we don't have the money to do it. We have to find how to get the same solutions at a cheaper price point. So yeah. that's how it works. It works with our natural behavior.
0: That's very cool advice. I love that. So the last question I ask every guest on the show is what is your secret to profiting in life?
1: So, um, So I I use profit as a kind of a nebulous or I should say all-inclusive term. There's the, yeah. So profit, the direct definition is how do I make more money? And I actually take the profit first system and I have it at home. I have, so profit first is a bank accounting based system or bank cash flow management system, Mm -hmm. uh, which we didn't really go into how to do that. But I have multiple accounts allocating money to different purposes before I spend it. And so everything's cash. Like when I buy a car, I pay cash for it because I've saved up the money to buy it. But I won't buy it prior, and that's my trigger. I know I can't buy a car until that money's saved up. So that's how I do it that way. But honestly, I shouldn't say honestly, inclusively outside of just money, I found it's really two things, savoring present moments, really being present, which is a difficult thing for me. But as I practice that and more intentional about being present, I realize of the all the quote-unquote profitability that just exists around us, all the moments of joy and happiness that are there that I was overlooking in the past. And the other thing is health. Health is, I really understand the importance of health and exercise and that without our health, good diet, good exercise, good sleep behaviors, that we can't live out fully. So if you really want to be profitable, you got to nail that part
0: health. I love that. Great advice. And where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do?
1: Oh, well, thank you. Uh, you can visit my website. It's called Mike But here's the thing. No one can spell McCallowitz So <laughs> there's a shortcut. It's Mike Motorbike. My nickname in college was, uh, or high school, I should say, was Mike Motorbike. The irony is I've never driven a motorcycle. I don't want to, but that's what they called me because it rhymed. If you go to MikeMotorbike.com, it'll bring you to my site. And I do have a a button there that says get the tools. I give all my books, chapters from my books away. And not just like, you know, here's the fluff chapters. I give like the actual exputal content. So you can get all that stuff for free. Plus I'm a podcaster. My podcast is called Entrepreneurship Elevated. Uh, I'll give you a link to that when you go to my website. So go to MikeMotorBike.com.
0: Awesome. Well, I loved this conversation. I think we had so many gems throughout it. So thank you so much for joining Young and Profiting Podcast.
1: It was such a joy, Hala. Thanks for having me.
0: Mike is such a wealth of knowledge. He's a true innovator in this business space. And look, we had this conversation back in 2020, two whole years ago, but somehow the topics covered in this episode are even more relevant today. Talk about evergreen business content. And I think especially what Mike said about balancing the team is super interesting. We're in the midst of what we're calling the great resignation. And to be successful as a business, you've really got to hire the right people and then support them in their passions, and their interests. Otherwise, you're going to just be hemorrhaging time, money, and talent because people are going to leave your organization. And I love what Mike says about hiring employees who are passionate over hiring employees with existing skills. The technical aspects of a job can be taught, but the passion or interest is either there or it's not. I personally am in the stage of my business where I'm really looking for people with both skills and talent because we don't really have time to train. But if you're in the position to train, I would definitely prioritize passion over skills. And this reminds me of a recent conversation about conscious leadership with John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods in episode number 166. We talked about how if employees are happy and inspired at work, that their energy is infectious. Clients will be happier with the products or service, which in turn will lead to more profits and greater success. And if you have great employees, you're one step closer to your business thriving without your constant oversight. And think about all the time and energy you can save to start putting into other ventures or aspects of your life if your business is running itself. Now, when you're ready and you feel like putting your business and your team to the test, ask yourself... Will your business continue to grow and thrive if you're totally absent for an entire month? If so, then great. Your business is successfully running like clockwork, and you can start focusing on the aspects that you love or innovative projects or even branching out into something else while your business continues to succeed. If not, take a look back at Mike's seven-step framework and assess what you need to work on. Maybe your QBR isn't quite pinned down. Maybe you're spending too much money on the wrong clients, or maybe you've got to take a step back and really take a hard look at where you're spending your time versus where you should be spending your time. Okay, so last but not least, we all want to profit, right? So as you move into Q2, I want you to consider something. Consider Mike's idea of putting profit first. Now, when we hear Mike talk about this, it sounds super obvious and it just kind of makes sense, right? But the funny thing is as intuitive as it sounds, this isn't the typical way it's done in business. But if your company is not practicing profitability as a habit, it's not too late, Like Mike said, start by hiding a set percentage of revenue away. This is going to force you to be frugal with your income that you have to spend, and then you'll be creative and see what solutions you come up with and see how your bottom line changes as a result of putting profit first. All right, young and let's set a goal. By the end of the year, I want to hear that you've got your companies and your side hustles running like clockwork. And if you haven't yet, make sure you guys follow me on Instagram and Twitter at yapwithhala. Shoot me a DM. Let me know how everything is going. You guys can also find me on LinkedIn at Hala Taha. Give me a follow over there and let me know your progress. And if you haven't yet and you have access to an iPhone, no matter what app you listen to, I would really appreciate if you dropped us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts are like the most coveted type of reviews for podcasters. It really helps with social proof. And I actually don't have the biggest following on Apple. I'm huge across all apps. And so I'd really appreciate if you guys took some time and dropped me an Apple Podcast review and subscribe there while you're at it. Thanks for listening to yet another great episode of Young and Profiting Podcast. Until next time, this is Hala signing off.